Tervetuloa journalismin iltapäivään, Radio Morenin kuuntelijat. Tämä on suora lähetys Tampereen yliopistosta. Ja minä olen journalistiikan työelämäprofessori Johanna Vehko. Vedän täällä tätä luentosarjaa journalismin ja teknologian suhteesta. And now I'm going to switch language, because today's talk will be in English. And this is a lecture by Professor Gavin Titley, who comes from Maynooth University in Ireland. And uh, Gavin's lecture is titled Free Speech Today, Social Media Platforms and Mediated Politics. Now this first hour uh, will be Gavin's lecture and then we're going to have a 15-minute break. And after this we're going to have a more informal discussion about themes related to free speech. Go ahead, Gavin. I thank you. It's very nice to be here with you all in the room and my greetings to the many thousands of listeners of Radio Moreni who are listening at home across the nation and across the world. Um, we're going to talk today about freedom of speech, which people often find very interesting to talk about, and specifically in relation to thinking about social media platforms as public infrastructures, but it will take us a little while to get to them in depth and to look at their impact on various forms of mediated politics. Some, in, some examples we'll take towards the end of this lecture and many we will look to discuss with Johanna in the second hour from which our radio listeners will be cruelly excluded. So what we're going to look at over the next 45 minutes or so is to try to answer the question as to why debates about freedom of speech seem to be so endlessly controversial in various ways across very different cultural social and political realities and contexts. There's a series of debates about the meaning of freedom of speech, the remit of freedom of speech, its significance, its relationship to other rights, which seems to be sort of ongoing and endlessly stirring and producing conflicts and controversies, conflicts and controversies that look actually quite similar, as I said, across what are otherwise very different media, political and social realities. And one of the things that makes this endless controversy about freedom of speech so curious in some ways, or so strange, is that these controversies are taking place in contexts of sort of apparently limitless or abundant communication. Now, of course, as we know, how people have access to communication, to being listened to, to being heard, that's very unevenly, unequally, and unjustly distributed, both within a nation and internationally, and so forth. But nevertheless, there's something curious about the fact that a lot of people are exercised about freedom of speech in a context where, historically, we've never had so much speech, if we take speech to encompass a multitudinous, or a multitude of different forms of communication and content production, and so on. So we need, therefore, to think about these debates about freedom of speech and conflicts over freedom of speech in terms of the productivity of social media platforms and social media platforms embedded in, of course, a wider media and informational infrastructure. Because there's something about the dynamics, there's something about the modes of engagement, there's something about the ways in which they reshape publics that are driving discussion, conflict and anxiety over freedom of speech and what freedom of speech should involve even as they transform the conditions and the forms that speech and communication take. 
Now, I don't want to make a kind of media-centric argument here today, even if I'm going to concentrate on the, if you like, speech part of freedom of speech more than the freedom bit, because we talk an awful lot often about what freedom means in terms of freedom of speech, and a bit less in terms of the speech aspect. So I will be focusing on kind of media analysis and media analysts in some ways. But I also want to emphasize that the kinds of things we're looking at don't make sense outside of certain kinds of social and political conflicts, which we'll bring in to the analysis also. So what we're going to look at then, you can see on the screen behind you, just to talk it through for those who are not present in the room. After this brief introduction, I'm going to look at thinking about free speech politics today in two slightly different ways. Then to look at the question, which is very, very basic, but sometimes very difficult to answer. What do we actually mean when we talk about freedom of speech? What does it encompass? What are the ideas that structure this as a fundamental or important notion, particularly in liberal democracies. Then we'll turn to look at the specificity of the debates around platforms and the mediatization of speech. So what does it mean to talk about speech on platforms and how does that alter some of the kind of historically very embedded debates that we've had about what freedom of speech means and its value. And then to look at this also in a slightly wider view, which is to think about then the problem of sort of abundant communication. So not just traditional debates about the limits of speech, but when we have almost limitless communication, what happens to some of the debates about freedom of speech. And finally, one of the things we look at there, you can see there the, 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 the arrow which says the problem of far-right capture. We'll have a discussion, or one of the themes that we can discuss in the seminar afterwards is the ways in which confusions about and conflicts over freedom of speech, one of the primary political beneficiaries um, in Finland but also elsewhere over the last 10 years or so have been the sort of political far right, which is curious because the political far right, of course, is an avowed enemy of pluralism, liberal democracy, constitutional rights, the notion of the sovereignty of the individual, and yet they're among the biggest fans of debates about freedom of speech. So we want to maybe talk about and look a little at that question. Okay. So let's move on then to the first aspect of this, which is to think about free speech politics today and to ask the question, why is there so much discussion? Why is there so much heat? Why is there so much controversy and so much conflict over what freedom of speech means, its status, its remit, its relationship to other rights, and so on? There are two answers to this, or at least two contingent answers that we can look at in the first instance in this part of the talk. One answer to it is, I think, somewhat obvious because the repression of speech or expression is a constant dimension, more or less, of other forms of political repression. So as the historian Charlotte Lydia Riley puts it, to read for those who are not here from the slide, there remains many people, or there remain rather, many people and communities around the world who do not currently enjoy the freedom of speech. Journalists who cannot publish their reports because their newspapers are controlled or censored by the government. Writers who cannot express their criticism of regimes without being thrown into prison. Poets and playwrights who risk ending their careers or even their lives if they speak the wrong words that express the wrong ideas. There are communities who cannot practice their religion freely for fear of persecution. And there are political parties that are banned or violently opposed. Across the world, there are people whose speech rights are limited or denied and governments whose power comes from denying their people's right to criticism or to condemn them. So in other words, what we have here then, as I said, is a kind of a constant. Freedom of speech is controversial because it's a constant element or the repression of expression is a constant element or dimension of other forms of political repression. 
The second reason for it, however, is less constant. It's an epochal argument. It's an argument that suggests that there's something qualitatively different about the speech climates today, whereas previously there was a golden age of freedom of speech, and today there are problems for, or limits on, or barriers to freedom of speech which did not exist before. Now, I don't know when this golden age existed. Maybe something like in the 1990s, where Texas had their album, You Can Say What You Want. And we fast forward to 2019, where we have Sana Ukkola saying, actually, you can't say what you want. We have a similar kind of idea being expressed a year later in the New York Times, that America has a free speech problem because people can't say what they want without what Ukkola calls a kind of punishment, punishment shaming or what the New York Times calls being shunned and shamed for your opinions. So a second way of narrating or thinking about what's going on is that according to some commentators and some pundits, something fundamental has changed. There was a period where freedom of speech was in a sense a fundamental value which was respected, and of course we've all learned to be suspicious of such kind of nostalgic golden age arguments, but that today something is going on which makes it very difficult for people to say what they want. They're being silenced all over the place. Now, there's a couple of strange things here. And one of the things we could immediately note and would be interesting to discuss in the seminar afterwards is how you can have an argument being made in an Ule blog and a New York Times editorial, which are almost identical, despite the significant political, media, social differences between Finland and the United States. So there's something odd about that transnational travel and translation of these debates about freedom of speech in the first instance. But we'll come back to that later. The thing I want to concentrate on now, of course, is something very obvious, so obvious it's almost a cliché, that these forms of silencing are actually very, very loud. To be silenced today is to be very, very noisy about it. There's a constant media or public meta-discourse on doing freedom of speech the right way or the wrong way and so on. So what is at issue in this second way of thinking about freedom of speech politics is not so much state censorship or political repression, but the nature of public discourse and the nature of publics themselves in a public space which is being transformed by, as we know, networks of communication that don't just circulate abundant content, they do it at speed and at density and at velocity. And what this does is it produces new kinds of public conflicts, new kinds of public formations, which we're going to look at in the second part of the lecture. So these two ways of thinking about free speech politics don't exist just parallel to each other. Politics one, we could say, is much more serious, but politics two is the politics which dominates the uh, airwaves and dominates the column inches transnationally at the moment. So the question then becomes what's going on? How do we explain the nature of this discourse? There's a number of ways of doing it, I suppose. One answer, which plenty of commentators who are part of this meta-debate themselves would offer, is that the idea of freedom of speech has kind of just been stretched into all kinds of funny shapes. This is the argument of Will Davies in a Guardian long read from a couple of years ago uh, about the supposed crisis of freedom of speech, or the free speech panic, as he calls it, where he looks at the range of ways in which people appeal to the notion of freedom of speech to suggest that they're being unfairly treated in public debate and suggests that we learn or can learn almost nothing from this. As Davies puts it, the idea of free speech is being stretched to the point where the phrase starts to mean a little bit too much. 
Another commentator, Pankai Mishra, who's writing here in kind of frustration at the ways in which after the attack on Salman Rushdie in August, there was a whole kind of sort of outbreak of writing which connected the attacks on Rushdie, which nearly cost him his life, to the sort of apparent existence of contemporary cancel culture. And he gets very frustrated with these things being sort of brought together into a kind of narrative of free speech crisis. And he says, well, look, you know, there never was a golden age. But what's going on now is that very many sort of established, respected commentators are a little bit sort of unsettled by the fact that people can answer back to them, that the public space is a bit more messy. Um, that they don't have the same sort of authority or unquestioned expertise or public status that they may have had previously, which may explain the sort of Uckel and New York Times thing we were looking at in the previous slide. So there's probably a truth to these kinds of perspectives as well. They're quite polemical perspectives. Um, and to just simply rest there would not make for a very interesting analysis of what's going on in terms of contemporary freedom of speech as a sort of understanding and as a practice. I think there's far more going on than simply people using it to claim attention for themselves in the context of a competition for attention, although that's clearly one aspect of what is afoot. Another way to think about or to try to start structuring an analysis of freedom of speech is given to us by the Australian legal academic Catherine Gelber, who in a book about freedom of speech after 9-11, where she's very interested and she writes here about the United Kingdom, about Australia and about the United States. She could probably have added, for example, over the last few years since the terrorist attacks in France, she could add France to this paradigm as well. She's interested in the way in which freedom of speech becomes a very sort of cherished national civilizational ideal. This is something which defines the nation, even as in the aftermath of 9-11 of and the securitization of politics in these states, the political policing and surveillance and repression of speech is actually quite intensive. So she's trying to explain this disjuncture. On the one hand, people celebrate freedom of speech, while politically, freedom of speech is something which has been limited in all kinds of important ways in this context and in this conjuncture. And what she argues is that we need to understand that the idea of freedom of speech has what she calls ideational force. It does something. People appeal to it in a whole variety of ways which place a very significant democratic value or premium on it. And this idea ideational force exists and is sort of common, if you like, is comparable across contexts where the ways in which speech is actually legislated for, institutionally organized, socially sanctioned, and all of these kinds of things can be very, very different. So here we can explain again why we can see a very similar argument about freedom of speech's ideational force made on an Ule blog and a New York Times editorial, even if the way that speech is distributed and regulated in Finland and the United States may be very, very different. So the point that Gelber makes is that these two layers are very, very difficult to reconcile. So what we can't do is to look for a definition of what freedom of speech really means and apply it to the messiness and complexity of these realities. Instead, she argues, we have to do what's called kind of emic research. We have to look at what freedom of speech means in these contexts and assemble the arguments from that. And that's what I'd like to try to do as we move towards thinking about this in the context of social media platforms. But prior to that, we need to think a little bit then about the various ways in which freedom of speech is understood. At some basic level, freedom of speech means the freedom to express oneself without coercion. 
And when understood like this, I think we can, it's something that we can, without being essentialist about it, come as close as possible to thinking of it as a sort of human desire, as a condition for human flourishing. As um, a team of anthropologists in this very recent article point out, who are themselves very suspicious of the idea that freedom of speech is a sort of universalized value which emerges through the European Enlightenment and which is enshrined in Western democracy. They say, well, look, it doesn't really work like that. People embody and experience speech and speech relations in a whole variety of different ways, globally and historically. But that said, they argue, it's clear, to quote them, that it remains a persistent fact that many of the people anthropologists work with value, desire, or imagine something like freedom of speech as a particular goal and mourn, fear, or protest its absence. So at some level, we could say, as I said again, without being particularly essentialist about it, that it has some link to widely distributed ways of thinking about the conditions for human flourishing. But even if this is deeply felt, and even if it isn't always codified as freedom of speech, the question of answering why freedom of speech is important is not always an easy question to answer. One of the reasons for this, the philosopher John Durham Peters, who taught in this department actually in previous years, argues in this book, Courting the Abyss, is that debates about freedom of speech often take a very peculiar form. And a form of debate or form of discussion about freedom of speech is what he calls a recursive discussion. So something happens, there's a conflict, there's a disagreement, there's something, say, that happens in the news which raises questions about freedom of speech. And what we do, he argues, is we go immediately from the concrete relations and issues that are at stake to the normative principle and debate, if you like, the status of the principle, its validity, its legitimacy, the way that it should be applied to the situation. And what happens in these instances, he argues, is we sort of lose a lot of what's really going on. And it's that what's really going on, of course, that we need to keep centre stage if we want to understand a more complex media and communications environment. So what he invites us to do is to try to open up different dimensions beyond just simply celebrating or assessing the significance of the principle. There are a number of ways we can do this. One, of course, is to, if we're still just talking about rights, to recognize that freedom of speech is what Alan Hayworth calls a composite right. It's actually just not one thing. It's multiple uh, aspects connected together. And as he puts it here, I'm not going to go through the whole quotation. I've put a lot of material on this slide, on these slides, knowing that it will be there for you to go through afterwards if you so wish. Many different activities, as Hayward points out, involve more than speech and some hardly involve speech at all. So the idea of speech is an umbrella notion, but it's also in some ways an unusual way of giving an umbrella to a variety of different forms of, of expression. So something like Colin Kaepernick taking the knee uh, for Black Lives Matter at US football matches is an instance of freedom of speech and led to a massive sort of controversy over his right to do so vis-a-vis -vis the compulsory patriotism of US society. But of course, it's not speech, it's a mode of expression. So this is the point that Hayworth is making, is it's a composite right and has to be regarded as such. So, if it's a composite right, then it has different ways of being, if you like, embedded justified, um, given foundational status. And here it's a little bit sort of theoretical, but hopefully we can use these two notions to open up some more practical debates later on. 
There are two broad ways, in, again, in the sort of broad, in this instance, liberal tradition or liberal philosophical tradition, which has shaped understandings of freedom of speech in North America and Europe since the, the 18th and 19th century. There's kind of two ways of justifying the importance of freedom of speech. The first is a sort of moral argument, meaning that it's a, an argument about something which is true and which is valid regardless of its ontology, regardless of what happens as a consequence of it. So it's a moral argument for human autonomy. I have a right to freedom of conscience and expression, and that requires freedom from coercion. So this is the right which is enshrined, for example, in Article 19 of the UN Declaration of, of Human Rights. So it's a very familiar way of thinking about the importance of freedom of speech. The second category of arguments is often what's called consequentialist arguments, meaning it's an argument that freedom of speech is important because it does something, it has consequences, and those consequences are good. And many of these arguments, again, are very familiar part of sort of everyday debate, that truth emerges, if you like, through free inquiry, whatever we might decide truth might mean, that open debate results in the better, better ideas circulating in society, that democratic legitimacy depends on a sort of transparency uh, with which a society conducts its affairs and so on. Now, if we think about the free speech politics that I was looking at earlier, most of the controversies that dominate the headlines have something to do with this notion of a kind of moral, moral autonomy, right? You won't silence me, I won't censor myself, I get to speak, I want to speak, I'll take my space. But what's far more interesting, if we look at what's going on in media communications and wider society, are these consequentialist arguments. The ideas of, well, what does freedom of speech actually do? What does it actually achieve under conditions through which people speak and communicate? And one of the things which is clearly happening if we look at debates about the impact of social media over the last years, debates which are not just academic, but which happen a lot of the time in the media and in politics, is that a lot of the ideas that we have about what freedom of speech should do are being reshaped by the nature of our communication systems. So we can talk about, for example, the pursuit of truth, which is one of the most grandiose notions, which is a consequentialist idea about freedom of speech. Yet over the last 10 years, we've been talking constantly, or at least analysts have been talking about the post-truth era, the difficulty of establishing any form of truth that binds people together, both because of sort of informational overload and also because of the kinds of political tactics, which we'll talk about later, which are possible under these conditions. We have a lot of discussions about, the, or, or one of the, sorry, rather, one of the ways in which freedom of speech is most obviously justified is through the value of open debate. But all of these cancel culture debates are some sort of expression of anxiety over the fact that open debate doesn't really work the way that it's meant to. It's not just that people disagree in public, they also disagree about how to have disagreements. So in other words, the basis on which discussions or debates are conducted has become much more relativized and much more complex. In the United States, where these debates are a bit more particular, but these ideas travel beyond it, you'll often hear people say, well, the answer to bad speech is good speech, is more speech. But what do we do under conditions of amplification, where the entire business model of corporate social media platforms is to amplify and to produce discourse as central to their production of value and their production of profit? 
Finally, the notion which is very central to thinking about freedom of speech is that what makes it valuable is that speech is an expression of individual conscience. And yet, of course, speech, which surrounds us every day, is produced by bots. It's ordered by algorithms. It's sometimes surfaced and sometimes throttled by the logics of platforms themselves. So in other words, there's a whole range of ways in which these consequentialist ideas about what freedom of speech do are challenged by the everyday ways in which platforms and the wider digital ecology function. So what we then need to do is to try to find ways that work past this, that, work, that, that allow us to rethink without being sucked into the trap of being for freedom of speech or against it, but to try to rethink some of these consequentialist assumptions. What does happen to speech under these kinds of conditions and under these through these new kinds of structures. So one of the things that we can do in a lecture series like this and in a communications department is try to open this out a little bit by talking a little bit more, as I said, about the speech bit as opposed to the freedom bit. Because the freedom debate, the limits on speech, the relationship of freedom of speech, other rights, is sort of very dominant. And it's very dominant for, for, for very understandable reasons. But I think what we need to do is to think a little bit more about the speech bit to try to understand the different ways in which freedom of speech has or does not have consequences today. A few quick points that I won't linger on because we need to move on and get into the next stage. The first thing that we could obviously do is recognize as linguists do or as the anthropologists I was quoting earlier is that we as communicative beings don't actually experience something called speech. We experience situated language use, situated communicative relations. And so speech, as Nick Reamer, an Australian linguist argues, is so abstract and so far away from our experience of communication that we should really question, if you like, its, 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 its utility to us, its analytical utility. So it has this life, this ideational force, as we were looking at earlier on, where we recognize speech to be valuable. But the argument that Nick Reamer makes is that it doesn't very describe how we live. It doesn't describe the ways in which we experience communication. So if we think that there's sort of free speech and it's something that we should enjoy, but then we think about the way we experience situated language use, such as a lecture here, well, I mean, you are free at some level to just speak up now, but there's something about the weight of this institution, of the lecture, which means that almost nobody feels free to do so until they're given the permission to ask a question. And that's the point that Reamer is making here, that the notion that speech exists and is sort of in a realm of freedom or unfreedom has very little to do with how we experience communication. The second point that's worth making is that free speech kind of free speech theory, as this writer Anshuman Mondal puts it, this sort of political philosophy around freedom of speech, doesn't have a theory of communication. In fact, it's incapable of having a theory of communication. And his way of explaining this is a little bit complex, so I've drawn here on Disney on Ice and Sin City to try to help to explain it, which you know, might have to describe to the listeners at home. Free speech sort of theorizing, he argues, imagines speech as sort of an ice rink, right? The ice is flat, it's homogenous, it's a unitary plane, and speech is free until it hits the barriers of the ice rink. And the barriers of the ice rink is law, 
law against incitement to hatred, law against slander, and so on. So this is the way in which speech is imagined, he argues, in sort of traditional debates about freedom of speech. So it's like an ice rink. You should be free until you hit the barriers. And the barriers are just the sort of the customs and laws of the land that then put particular, if you like, bar legitimate barriers on speech. What Mundahl argues is, again, we don't experience speech like that, and we don't experience media like that. Rather than being a kind of flat, icy surface, and this is, I suppose, the point where these kinds of metaphors start to break down a little bit, but bear with me, it's more like a kind of 3D modeling. It's more like a topography, where discourse, where speech flows, and it's never just free or unfree, but it's also partly shaped, partly controlled, partly trammeled, partly foreclosed, partly open, and so on, depending on the context, the institution, the form through which we speak and communicate, and so on. So, a little bit mad and all as this metaphor might be, it does help us to start thinking a little bit about what happens when speech and communication hit platforms or are expressed through platforms, which are of course much closer to this kind of topography of closure, foreclosure, openness and flow than they are to the kind of free flow across the ice until you hit the legitimate um, limits of the law. So let's think a little bit about then platforms and the mediation of speech. To understand how platforms transform debates about freedom of speech, we need to think very briefly for a moment about the different dimensions that make up what we call a social media platform. Small water break. Graham Meekle, for example, in his well-known book here on social media, communication sharing visibility, argues that any definition of social media needs to have three distinct but connected dimensions. So involving, as he says, networks as technological systems that are adopted and adapted, platforms as corporate services that commodify the information generated by user interactions into valuable databases, and finally, the public personal communication that is then vastly extended through medi mediated interaction and through, as he puts it, the imbrication of the public spaces of the media industries and the personal space of the individual response. So when we think about speech on the ice rink, it's this bit that we would talk about. How free are we to communicate? What Mikle is arguing is unless we think about the technological infrastructure, obviously, I know you've talked about this a lot in the series so far, and talk about then corporate governance and corporate practices, then we can't build up a picture of how speech is actually if you like, um, managed and distributed and so forth. Now, let's take this way of thinking about the various levels through which sort of speech on a social media platform is mediated and take it to one of the debates which has sort of dominated uh, the future of social media over the last few months or so. And I feel a little bit sort of guilty reaching for this example because I deeply do not like this man and I deeply also do not, as a very cheap laugh, I know, but, and I also deeply, and I should say that the man in question to those listening is Elon Musk before we get to him, I deeply don't like talking about him and I 
very deeply don't like taking a sort of profoundly North American example. On the other hand, of course, it's at the same time a globalized or transnational example, and it's one that pertains to a platform that we all use or are influenced by in various ways. So I suppose we just, I just have to swallow that and get on with it. And the example, of course, is Elon Musk's sort of on again, off again, on again, off again, don't hold me back, takeover of Twitter. Now, the reason, or, or, or at least the, the, the putative reason that Elon Musk gave for his Twitter takeover is that he wanted to, as he kind of grandly puts it, unlock its free speech potential. And this is odd, but it's odd for a number of reasons. One, of course, is that Twitter itself historically styled itself, as this report from The Guardian in 2010 reports, as the free speech wing of the free speech party. So in other words, as many social media platforms did in this sort of very short-lived golden age, when they were associated with all kinds of emancipatory potential and where they were giving their names in all kinds of, you know, politically wrong ways to revolutions around the world, the notion was that we are the free speech wing of the free speech party, that what we do is we facilitate freedom of speech on a global level. We're not a publisher, we're not an editor, we're not intervening, which of course, as we know, is precisely what platforms do. So the notion, uh, or Twitter's sort of stated uh, notion, was to facilitate and to practice what's called content neutrality. In other words, it doesn't matter what's said, it doesn't matter to them editorially, within the law. A facilitator, as I said, not a publisher. Now, of course, as many of you will know, this was never coherent. There are many cases earlier on this decade where Twitter was in various ways forced to engage with legal frameworks which they themselves would regard as sort of anathema to their idea of freedom of speech. So most famously in France in particular and in Germany in 2010, 2011, Twitter was forced to take down hate speech, uh, particularly anti-Semitic speech in France, and acknowledge that they would have to abide by laws and constitutional guarantees in these countries, whereas you know, this was not something that they that they themselves recognized. This changed quite a lot, of course, also during the Trump presidency in a lot of ways which were accelerated and quite complicated. But in particular, the fact that, for example, Twitter itself, as an organization with a very multiracial, pluralistic global workforce, was defending the speech rights of white nationalists was something which became quite controversial within the company itself. So there's lots of ways in which this notion was never quite accurate and was transformed very, in a very accelerated way over the last couple of years. But so this might be what Elon Musk has in mind or had in, in mind when he decided to unlock the free speech potential of Twitter. But in fact, for him, the problem is not just these compromises, but the very fact of moderation and content removal itself. This, he argues, constitutes censorship. And as I said, this is an extreme individual and an extreme argument, but it's actually an argument that you find, or sensibility that you'll find in a lot of other places beyond the strange world of Elon Musk. So anything which is seen to intervene in the flow of content places limits on the so-called marketplace of ideas, which again is another of these kind of consequentialist metaphors. And as he expresses it, hey, you might li not like these ideas, but the overall democratic health, as you can see here, free speech is necessary to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? So again, we have this principle debate, and it is something which is fundamental to a functioning democracy, and therefore, Here's Elon Musk talking in very consequentialist terms. Any kind of interference is therefore 
um, a problem. It's a problem of censorship. It's a limit on freedom of speech. Now, in the pieces that I forwarded you to read for the lecture today, you'll have seen a lot of the, the obvious problems with this position, so I won't linger on them too long, other than to say that what Elon Musk is trying to do here is he's trying to superimpose Disney on ice on the realities, or the fantasy, if you like, of Disney on ice on the realities of Sim City. The, first of all, default to legal speech was, as this was pointed out very, very early on, I remember hearing this in a discussion on, on NPR a couple of days after the takeover bid was announced and there was a kind of communication specialist there saying, well, look, if Elon Musk wants to default to American legislation based on the First Amendment to allow all legal speech to be to circulate it and to remain on the platform, to remove notions of hate speech, to remove forms of content moderation. One of the things that happens ha is, is consequentialist. All spam has to remain up, all non-spam communication gets lost in the wash of spam, and therefore the platform would become functionally unusable. So in other words, it would not be a realm of free speech in any meaningful kind of way. So one of the things that we can see here about this kind of exist, about this sort of rhetoric about freedom of speech is that it can only exist as rhetoric, but that doesn't mean that it's not powerful or politically sort of significant given the kinds of people who are invested in it today. The second aspect of it is that if you were to default to, um, we can talk about this afterwards, default to local laws, then there are a whole variety of laws which have been brought in, particularly under the guise of combating sort of hate speech and misinformation, under the guise in accelerated terms of combating COVID-19 misinformation. There's a whole variety of different legal frameworks globally, which would allow governments and states to intervene very, very, very dramatically. Um, in, in content publication and content circulation on the platform itself. So these are obviously, if you like, the legal, the, the sort of legal and contextual ramifications. The others have got to do, as I said, with the corporate platform priorities and rationales themselves. The other reading that I circulated to you is this notion of algorithmic audiencing beyond and as an issue beyond content moderation by two Australian academics who argue that basically what happens of course on Twitter is that you might be free to sort of publish something but you're not actually getting heard by anybody. Now we all know this of course when we engage in a platform like this. Vanishingly small amounts of social media content actually engages an audience in any sort of meaningful way. But there's something interesting here too in terms of thinking about it in terms of sort of free speech philosophy or free speech thought. The notion of freedom of speech as a right has always involved not just the rights of the speaker, but the rights of the listener. If freedom of speech is about freedom of conscience and therefore requires moral autonomy, it's not just that I should be free to speak, it's also you should be free to make up your mind about what it is that I have to say. And what happens, they, they argue, in terms of this notion of algorithmic audiencing is that some, not just some voices are amplified and others not, some vanish in consequential terms altogether. And if we are to talk seriously about how speech is managed and distributed on a platform, the ways in which algorithms produce audiences for particular types of content and not for others, they argue, would need to be part of the debate. Maybe that's something we can debate a little afterwards too. Okay, let me make one last point then before we, we finish. I think we have about seven, seven minutes of airtime left and the rest we can take to the discussion afterwards. So let me 
can hear the typing of my computer there as I open up some other notes. Okay, the last point I want to make or try to get into is the problem of kind of abundant communication and a specific aspect of it, which is about openness and, and closure. I'm not sure we'll get through all of this in the time we have, but we can talk a little bit more about it afterwards. And I want to do this by comparing two sort of books which have made a sort of significant impact on thinking about freedom of speech. And it's not a comparison in the sense that one was written and published in 1859, which is John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which is kind of classic uh, central text and thinking about the kind of consequential value of freedom of speech. And another is a book that you might have come across in your studies, Mark Andreevich's book, Infoglot from 2013, which in many ways preempts an awful lot of debates about fake news and post-truth. And in some ways, I think is still the best analysis of some of these dynamics, even for having preempted them or been written before they became sort of central to public discourse. So I don't think it's very controversial to say that never in human history has there simply been so much speech and so much discourse and so much noise. If we were to look at Twitter statistics, given we've been talking about it, it publishes 6,000 tweets per second and so forth. None of this means, of course, that access to meaningful speech and to being listened to and taken seriously is in any way equal. It's still radically unequal, for sure. But what it means for thinking about freedom of speech is that we can't only have debates about the limits on speech, which is what Elon Musk and others want us to have. We also need to think about what happens when we have practically limitless speech, speech in the sense of content which is circulating at great density and great velocity, and the significance of this for the ways that we think about what freedom of speech does. Now, for centuries, received thinking about freedom of speech has associated expanding the realm of expression with with the good, with collective pursuit of truth and knowledge, greater democratic participation. And of course, that's still a challenge in many important ways. So for John Stuart Mill in On Liberty, um, the way that freedom of speech is important is that the individual's conscience is sovereign and it's given external expression through speech, communication, the publication of opinions. And what this requires is a commitment to openness. We must maximize openness at every given opportunity. So individuals can access, engage with ideas, make up their own minds, free from any kind of arbitrary restriction. But this has always had a tension in it, even in the time he was writing. If we want maximum openness, but we're looking to pursue the truth. If you believe that you've achieved the truth, then the truth itself is kind of a form of closure. You don't want to keep it perpetually open, right? You've got to sort of say, we make a decision, we stand in relation to this finding or to this idea or to this consensus. So there's always been a tension between the idea of openness as increasing the democratic good and closure as a way, if you like, that freedom of speech allows us to progress and so forth. So let's hold this tension a minute and look at it in terms of Mark Andreevich's argument in 2013 about precisely the same ideas. What Andreevich argues is that he agrees with Mill in that in the past, many, as he puts it, but not all of the historical struggles related to control over information in the history of contemporary democratic societies revolved around issues of scarcity and the restriction of access to information. So he looks at attempts to ban books, license and regulate printing presses, and so forth. So he agrees. The enforced scarcity that Mill was suspicious of was, and, and therefore underpins his commitment to openness is, of course, a real issue. 
But the question that Andreevich is interested in is what happens to this notion, this relationship between scarcity, power and information, when we have an infoglut, as he calls it, an abundance of information and competing sources of information. And for him, what it means is fundamentally questioning the equation between access to information and empowerment, as he puts it. So, just move this on a little bit. So, the contemporary media environment for Andreevich is one where there's a proliferation of accounts of reality. And this doesn't just confuse us, or this doesn't just result in too much choice. It can produce, he argues, new forms of control and new forms of power that we haven't really thought through when we're still in the paradigm of thinking about, if you like, challenging scarcity and opening up the realm of opinion. But when we have, if you like, a field of endlessly circulating opinions, then power and control operate in slightly different ways. Not through controlling the definitive meaning of events, he argues, but power over an endless multiplication of accounts that drown out the capacity to, if you like, have one explanation, one story, one commitment to the truth. So in that way, fake news has always been a problem, not if you like, just because of the fabrication of stories, but it because it relativizes every story. It allows every story to be dismissed as something false. And this is the point that he's making here. And this in particular, he argues, has benefited right-wing populist politics, not only, but very specifically, who can, he argues to quote, to quote him, cast doubt on any narrative's attempt to claim dominance. All so-called experts are biased, any account is partial, all conclusions the result of an arbitrary and premature closure of the debate. I didn't, was that a minute or two or? Okay. Half a minute even, okay. I will conclude. So what's striking in conclusion is that Andreevich uses the same terms as Mill here about openness and closure, but the divergence is stark. The problem is not only premature closure, but the perpetually systemic openness of the information and media environment. And I think to end it here, we can look at very many examples of this when we turn to the discussion. But many of the conflicts of freedom of speech that we started with are, are, are conflicts over the relative relationship between openness and closure, or the value of openness and the legitimacy of closure. And what's happening politically today is, of course, we make decisions about closure all the time. We make decisions, we stop talking in 30 seconds, and so on. But in this climate, every act of closure can be politicized as a failure of openness. So there is a conflict, if you like, between the rhythms and circulatory infrastructure of the internet and social media and the way that this structures public debate and in fact the way other institutions make decisions, enforce closure and come to certain kinds of temporary temporary consensuses and so on. So in conclusion, what's going on with freedom of speech is that the consequentiality that we've, uh, we've associated with it for a couple of hundred years is unsettled by changes in the communication environment. And of course it is. These notions were not written a hundred years ago just for us to wear them on t-shirts and idolize them as perpetual principles. They were arguments which emerged from the changing historical conditions of speech and political participation in the 18th century. So what's happening now under these conditions is we need to rethink them a little bit. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin. Radio Moreni, Tampere.